Hello, welcome to T Hanks for the Memories. I am your host, Darren, and today we are going to be talking about the notorious, uh, the bonfire of the vanities, uh, a gigantic flop released on the 21st of December 1990. Such a big flop that it had a, a book that accompanied it, and of course, itself was also based on a book. Uh, getting top billing, of course, Tom Hanks, because that's how you make the money at the box office, is you put someone who has had a bunch of successful films in the 80s, joining him, two other successful actors. Um, I think this is the first time that Tom has had uh, triple billing on a film. Um, we've got Melanie Griffiths, and of course we've got Bruce Willis. Um, and the novel, I think, came out a few years before the film. It was a huge success. Tom Wolfe wrote like i don't know six novels in his entire life i don't know how he managed to make a living uh but apparently they sold really well um and brian de palma um took over from mike nichols as director of the film the film went through quite a bit of development stuff which we can talk about once we get into it and joining me to talk about this notorious box office bomb uh is martin sand hello martin hello and david king hello david Hello, Darren. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think before we even get to this film, you know, it has a reputation notoriously for being a huge box office flop. The funny thing is, you know, these days, you would look at the kind of box office, you know, like it was 47 million budget, which is, you know, in the 80s, that is quite a lot. And it only made 15 million. I mean, you know, we're not talking like John Carter from Mars, which like literally lost like $400 million to the box office. Like it's it's so kind of weird that some of the kind of the notorious box office fails of like the 80s and 90s are like kind of lost such tiny amounts of money that like these days, you know, the entire like the salary of like anyone in in Avengers Endgame was like 50 million so the fact that, that, that like this film like only made 15 million is kind of it's kind of funny that it like it literally only lost 30 million and yet it's such a like, notorious um box office flop how, how does it um, compare to uh to other flops of that era like how does it compare to ishtar I, th- I if i remember rightly i think ishtar only like didn't even make 10 million and its budget was roughly roughly the same level as this it was like 40 50 million um so I think the the funny the funny thing is like you know there are proper t- com- like complete box office failures where you spend two hundred million and you get like twenty million back or whatever. Um, like I'd say that those are kind of like full proper. I think the kind of critical reputation of this was more like people hated the film. <laughs> like you know it, it yeah, like the, just the knives were out for this one. I think from the get go. Yeah, I mean, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 16%. I think it remains the, like, the lowest-reviewed um, film of Tom Hanks's career. Um, and with the next episode, we're about to go in what I'm calling the Golden 14, which is where Tom Hanks basically had either box office or critical hits for 14 straight films in a row. Um, and basically, they never got lower than 70% on Rotten Tomatoes. And like only that thing you do, I think, lost money at the box office. Everything else was like just made money, like hand over fist. Which, which is a shame. That, that thing you do was such a charming film. I think it's got something like 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so, it's like, come on, know, people. It was, it was, yeah, it was, well, it was well reviewed. But with this, like nobody liked this film. Uh, and I remember I had the 1993 edition, I say had, I still have, of Leonard Moulton's Movie Guide. And I remember seeing, I think it was, I think I saw like Working Girl and um, what is the other Melanie Griffiths film from the 80s? Uh, something wild there you go that is it yeah see those are the two films i saw Melanie griffiths in and i think i was just looking through leonard Moulton's movie guide for like another like Melanie griffiths film because obviously 
being, I think at the time, like a teenage boy, I had fallen in love with Melanie Griffiths because in those two films, she is like so kind of like, I mean, she's the thing is, she's extremely attractive in this film as well, uh, but miscast. Uh, but in in some don't, don't know about the hair. Well, <laughs> yeah, but in something wild, like something wild, like she, I mean, you know, she's such, such it's such a great performance. Um, and obviously, Working Girl was the thing. That, I guess Working Girl is what got her this film and what got her, you know, above the bit above the title billing on this thing was because, you know, that's that was an instant hit, made tons of money. You know, Mike Nichols did start as the director on this film, and I think that's one of the reasons why he like tried to bring Manly Griffiths in was because he, you know, worked with her previously. They made a lot of money. Obviously, he left the project and she stayed on. Um, and yeah, like I remember reading like Lennon Moulton being like, "This film is terrible," and he gave it the rating of a bomb. And <laughs> so I was like, well, I don't think I'm ever going to watch this film. Gosh, man. Yeah, well, you know, here I am like 20, 30 something years later and now, and now watching this film for the first time today, um, you know, which is what I've done with some of the a lot of the films from the 80s that I hadn't seen of Tom Hanks. You know, I've like watched for the first time recently. Um, and I mean, I will say this, you know, I'm not going to give any, you know, we'll reserve the ratings to the end. But I would say. Um, this film isn't as bad as I mean people might disagree but I would say this film isn't as bad as its reputation but then you know maybe 30 years on I've seen worse films than this <laughs> so oh this movie is nowhere near as bad as its reputation but having said that its reputation is so bad um, I don't think there are many movies that really could hit that level of, uh, of badness um, there's a lot wrong with it and I think the expectations for it were not met by such a degree, it develops this reputation. But, uh, I mean, it's, it, it doesn't need to be in the same conversation as something like Battlefield Earth or Ballistic X versus Sever. It's uh, cer- certainly not in that, that, that level. Yeah. Well, it's not at the same level of incompetence, but, dear God, it's a reprehensible movie. <laughs> oh, yes. There's a, the, the politics of it are pretty dirty. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a beautiful mess. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, well, then, Martin, do you remember the first time you saw this film? Uh, yes, I do. It was this morning. Um, uh, I signed up for this movie because, um, um, well, to uh, look behind the scenes a little bit, um, when the um, <clears throat> when the sign-up sheet went round, and I looked at the sign-up sheet. For some reason, in my head, I confused this movie with um, Death Becomes Her. And I didn't remember Tom Hanks being in Death Becomes Her, but I know I kind of liked the movie. And uh, so I was happy to rewatch Death Becomes Her and um, see uh, 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 what Tom Hanks is doing in it. This movie wasn't Death Becomes Her. <laughs> This movie... I guess this movie does have a bit of a stench of death around it, though. This movie has death, and it has Bruce Willis. And that's it. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, it, and it made me feel like I had, a, I, had a, I had a hole through the middle of my body for a while. Um, <clears throat> uh, anyway, I watched it this morning... I had found out before um, what the movie was about. I uh, I had realized my mistake, but I didn't think it would be this bad. Um, I think what adds to it is um, that when I tried to find the movie, 
I only could find, um, you know, among legal options I had in my market, I only could find a German dub. Oh. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. You know, if I had had the time to get a DVD or something, they would have had the original audio. Um, but um, as it was, I had to watch the German dub, which was terrible in itself. Um, German <laughs> dubs are um, usually pretty good f f as dubs go. Um, <clears throat> because, of course, the... Um, industry is um you know um highly advanced and experienced every movie every tv show gets dubbed um but um i don't know how interesting this is to anyone but if, if, if you heard the um uh, translated dialogue um it is so clear that it was done in um you know perhaps even a single night <laughs> <laughs> they translated the dialogue script it was it was uh so full of um strange unidiomatic translations um where you can clearly hear the um you know english sentence structure bleed through um also for some reason um i've seen a lot of tom hanks movies dubbed of course um watching them on television in germany and um he has um as many big actors do his usual um uh german uh dubbing voice in this movie for some reason he has bill murray's voice okay <laughs> Sorry, did you say Bill Murray's yes. voice? Well, he's dubbed by the actor who normally dubs Bill Murray. I love it. Yes, it's very, <laughs> it's very disorienting. Um. <laughs> did, uh, did did the movie have a different title in German, or was it just a literal translation of Bonfire of Vanities? It's a literal translation. Oh, okay. Im Fegefeuer der Eitelkeiten. Uh, <laughs> in See? the Bonfire of the Vanities, which... I think is also the um, translated title of the uh, novel. See, now, the thing is, that sounds like a classy film when you say that. Like, the German title makes it sound like it's a classy film, so... Um, <laughs> yes, kind of. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny, actually, because, like, you know, you mention um, Death Becomes Her, which for some reason in my mind I had as being a box office failure, uh, but apparently it made quite a lot of money, so I had that wrong. Um, but there is this weird thing where, like, Bruce Willis has this career... Um, you know, coming off of um, Moonlighting, where he does like Blind Date, which was like a terrible film, which we had on VHS as kids and we watched tons. So, um, and then he does like, you know, the voice in Look Who's Talking straight after doing Die Hard. And then after doing Die Hard 2, he did Look Who's Talking 2, and then this, all in 1990. And then, like, the next big film that he does is Hudson Hawk, which is obviously a box office failure. Then he did Billy Bathgate, which basically did the same box office as this film. It cost 48 million, made 15. So another kind of failure. Um, and then, like, you know, he does Death Becomes Her. Um, and then, like, after he did Pulp Fiction, he did North and then Color of Night and Nobody's Fool, which is just like, that's just a... Like, most for most people, that would have killed your career. Your career would be dead by that point. Like, you would have... you Your career would have finished in 1994... But Bruce Willis just keeps on making films. Um, 
So yeah, it's it's weird that like Hudson Hawk didn't completely kill his career after like he did that as a follow up to Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, so it's like I you know for most mortal people they would their career would have finished in 1991 that we would never have heard from him ever again. But for Bruce Willis, he just keeps on making films. Uh, which we'll get more into later. But then, David, you remember the first time you saw this film? I think, I'm guessing you signed up for this knowing that it was Bonfire of the Vanities and not thinking it was a different Bruce Willis project. No, I, I knew what I was getting into from the get-go, actually. Um, so my first uh, viewing of the film, um, I always knew it by reputation. Uh, it came out 1990, I think I would have been about 14. So I was I was reading Premiere and Movie Line. I was keeping, you know, I was quite quite interested in what was coming out and uh i had my eye i knew it was when it was in production uh, i remember reading bruce uh bruce willis tom hanks uh melanie griffith you know and brian de palma as well um so it was on my radar and then i remember when it came out just the absolute pummeling that it got and uh not not only the critical mauling but the the one sheet the poster for it is just one of the most boring posters I remember just, and I just remember seeing it, just thinking, oh, I don't want to watch that. And I just, I don't know, I just let it go. Never, didn't think about it for, for years. And then uh, late 90s, I remember picking up the book and just reading it in transit, going to and from work on the train, as, as people did before they had mobile phones, you read books. And um, I don't know, I, I didn't mind the book. Like there were a few things that didn't sit right with me, but it was, it was an interesting read. And it just, it sparked the interest to uh, to actually finally check out the movie. So, uh, actually, I, I can't believe I did this. I actually phoned up video stores and asked if they had a copy of Bonfire of the Vanities, um, which, I don't know, man, if I was answering that phone call, it'd be like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, but I tracked it down and, uh, yeah, went to a lot of effort to watch it. And uh, it was just... I know. I mean, I guess we will go into it. It didn't. It really didn't do much for me. It was. It was more of a, a case of you had so much to play with. Like, I mean, say what you want about the book, there was a lot of potential there, and you made a just such a forgettable mm-hmm. film. Um, so I kind of watched it and was like, okay, that's it, done, and uh, didn't really think about it until. Uh, until you put uh, the call out for this podcast, Darren, and uh, I've watched it three times since. Um, I don't know why I did that. I think I'm just a glutton for punishment. Um, but uh, yeah, here we are. <laughs> I can say watching it three times in uh, about a week or so, it has kind of primed my blood. I'm ready to tear, tear shreds <laughs> off this film. Um, so <laughs> the blood's boiling. Um but yeah, so that's that's my history. It's more more to do with the book. I kind of found the the movie just it, it's just background noise, really, isn't it? It's just there's just nothing to it. It's beautiful, but there's just nothing there. Yeah, I mean, here's what I'll say. Obviously, you know, I I come into this like knowing the reputation, um, but then like seeing the film, obviously Brian De Palma, you know, he's a like he's a good director. I don't think, you know, I mean, you know, the, what his choices on on what he picks to direct are kind of odd at times. Uh, and you know, yeah. like I, I think like the, the reason he ended up like doing the first Mission Impossible film was because this was such a failure, and he kind of had to recover his reputation a little bit by doing like a a studio film. Um, and there are some directors, I think Terry Gilliam's probably one of them, that get trapped in that cycle of, you know, they make a failure, 
Um, and then they are forced to do like a studio film to make some money. And then yes. they use that money D- De Palma had a, to do a failure. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. He, he had a bit of a string of values, um, not, not just Bonfire with the Vanities, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he, he followed this up with, was it Raising Cain? Yes, yeah. Yeah, which, uh, if I recall right, was a bit of a failure as well. Yes, yeah. I, I was going to say, I mean, you know, like, yeah, Raising Cain. I mean, Carlito's way, I guess made money but it what like it wasn't as successful i think as people were expecting it to be um you know it like from a 30 million budget it did 63 that, you know that's that's yeah, not, yeah, not yeah that, like when when you when you're in the when you're coming off the back of like stuff like godfella uh, goodfellas godfellas uh, when you're coming off the back of stuff like goodfellas i mean and even godfather part three they made money like you know mob films are making money yes. you make a mob film and it barely doubles its budget you know, it just it feels like, you know, you, you're, you're still failing. Um, and I think that's, you know, he was then kind of forced towards like Mission Impossible. And then after that, you know, he was kind of allowed to go back to his own stuff. with like Snake Eyes, um, which failed. And then, of course, he went to Mission to Mars to <laughs> attempt to do like a studio film, which, again, that was a failure. Um, so, you know, he's ba- he, like his basically his career has been this kind of weird. I mean, you know, I don't mind his films. I think there are some people out there who are more kind of like De Palma defenders than me. Um, but like, you know, he spends so much time trying to be like other directors uh, that it feels like sometimes he doesn't have anything to say himself. And, you know, like, uh, we'll talk about it, but like the, the kind of the opening shot of this, not the time lapse, which is wonderful because of course it prominently features the World Trade Center in the background, which has become a feature of Tom Hanks films of New York is there's always something to do with the World Trade Center going on in them. Um, but like once we get like the arrival of Peter Fallow, um, you know, which will turn out to be, um, you know, and, and like this kind of in media res opening, which we will get back to at the very end of the film, <laughs> you know, like it's like the, the kind of the parentheses around it. It's like it's like a five minute unbroken, you know, shot. And, you know, in in Snake Eyes, I think he did like an eight minute opening shot, you know, and obviously the weird thing is, of course, you know, uh, Vilmos Zygmunt, who is the, the cinematographer, he also worked with Robert Altman and did like you know, that long opening shot at the beginning of the player. So, I, I, you know, I guess Vilmos is not one to go for kind of coverage or whatever. Um, but, like, the kind of gimmicky, like, opening, like, this long opening shot, that serves no real, like, it could have been a series of cuts. There wouldn't have been anything lost by it, but just the fact that he's kind no, of showing it up. it was pointless. Yeah, that kind of stuff that De Palma does. I'm like, yeah, you know, there's a few times in this film where there's a few Dutch angles where people are kind of questioning when people are questioning like Tom Hanks and it kind of Dutch angles to show, you know, and it's like, it feels a bit showy for the sake of being showy. So, you know, I'm not like a, I'm like, you know, I'm not like an anti department person, but I, at the same time, there are people online who are like huge fans of his and I don't understand what they are um, like defending. Um, I think he, um, he does use of uh, a split screen. Yeah. Uh, about midway through the film that I thought was, an effective transition to introduce a new character. I thought, you know, that that was serviceable. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I, the opening shot that you were talking about, Darren, um, it seems to be such a such a waste. It seemed to be something that uh, ultimately, like so much in this film, added up to uh, just a big wet fart. Yeah. Um, I should say as well, you know, the film's got two editors, one of whom is Bill Pankow, who is basically De Palma's editor. He's basically edited everything since like 1984 uh, for for De Palma. So, 
um, you know, it's not. It's funny as well because you know, you know, there was a book that was written about the production of this film called *The Devil's Candy*, uh, written by Julie Salomon, and um, you know, obviously it earned a reputation itself. Um, and later there was a, a version released where um, the reaction of Bruce Willis to that book was included in like a, a newer edition of the book where... Oh, I'd love to read <laughs> yeah, that. Where basically Bruce Willis was not happy about that book. But she was given like access by Brian De Palma and he said of that book that it was an accurate portrait of what happened during the production. And obviously during the production, everyone else couldn't see how bad the film was. And he admitted afterwards, you know, it was it was accurate, you know, like, you know, she she wrote what she saw and, and she didn't like pull any punches and he was completely fine with the book and everything. Um, oh, yeah. So but I, I like, you know, I, I think, like we say, this film has a reputation that is probably a lot worse. Um, but before we get into the film, one last thing I wanted to bring up, which is the script was adapted by Michael Christopher. Um, Christopher spelt F.E.R. instead of the usual way. And he's like an actor, writer, director who has, if you've seen him, you probably would recognize him because he's been in like so many films and stuff. Um, but the funniest thing is like his his career as like a writer is so insane because he adapted Witches of Eastwick like three years before this. Um, and then he like he's only directed like five films, um, two of which were television movies. The first of which was Gia, um, which Oh, Angelina yeah, Jolie. Yeah, which is like this. Yeah, which like kind of made Angelina Jolie. Um, oh wow! Yeah. Um, and then he did a film called Body Shots, which is like a kind of like um, like nineties like indie film uh, that basically made no money at the box office. Um, uh, starred Tara Reid and uh, Jerry O'Connell. Um, and then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so it's about as it must be. It must be a good yeah, one. about as nineties as it gets. And then. His next film, like, that he directed, uh, and I remember seeing dozens of trailers for this, reunited him with Angelina Jolie, and it was the film, um, an erotic thriller called T Original Sin, uh, also starring Antonio Banderas and Thomas Jane. And I, I remember seeing the trailers for it so many times at the cinema, and it never, I don't think it ever got released in, in the UK because it, it was such a, like, huge flop. Um, but yeah, like his, his, like his directorial, and then he didn't direct anything for like almost 20 years. And then he directed a film called The Night Clerk, which came out last year, um, which, which stars, uh, Ty Sheridan and Anna Diarmas, um, and John Leguizamo and Helen Hunt. Like it's uh, like he's, wow. yeah. So his career is just kind of insane. Um, Night Clerk ended up going I did find on it. to um, Netflix. Oh, apologies, Darren. Sorry, um, I did. I did notice when I I, I looked um, Michael first for up online, um, having a look at his photo. He did look familiar. Yeah. Um, a look through his IMDb acting profile. He was in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yes, yeah, because I think he was on set as a screenwriter for that. He did some punch ups. Um, so that's so he because obviously he made friends with Bruce Willis while he was on set with this and then when they needed somebody to do some rewrites on set he was like well i'm an actor but also i can do some writing for you <laughs> so so obviously the relationship didn't sound too badly after yeah. this one so i don't know it's just it's just insane that like that's his career is like original sin and gia and i i i was like this like out of everybody in this film i was like michael christopher seems to have had the most interesting career and in between all that in being an actor he's also like a playwright so he's written like dozens of plays it's it, it's kind of 
I don't know. It's just I, I he struck me as the most interesting person associated with this entire project, <laughs> other than Tom Hanks, of course, which is why I'm doing a podcast about Tom. Of course. Hanks. So, um, you know, the film opens with this time lapse of New York, um, and we see the World Trade Center as the sun sets, um, and this leads us to Peter Fallow, who is extremely drunk, um, getting out of a cab. And he he basically kind of, as we said, there's this long shot where he arrives for this event. He goes through the basement. Uh, he ends up in a um, in a lift. Uh, he then gets up to like the, the backstage area where he gets dressed by some people. <laughs> they like undress him and dress him, um, which I got to say, it's some nice that's some nice like that's some good physical stuff from Bruce Willis there. Like he he like he, he kind of. Like he's meant to play this person who's kind of semi comatose and, and kind of being manipulated, you know, by other people, and he does it well. Like he, you know, it, it's it's well executed. There's some definitely some great physical comedy I thought from Willis in this scene. I like the scene uh, in that shot where he's in the lift and there's what looks like about twenty kilos of smoked salmon <laughs> yeah. sitting, <laughs> just sitting there, just being brought up by by catering or what have you, and. Uh, he just grabs a handful of this salmon, takes a bite, offers. Does he not offer it to uh, yeah. the other girl in the lift? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then just throws it across the wall. I love it. And it sticks yeah. to the wall. <laughs> it does stick to the wall. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, while this long shot is kind of pointless, there at least there are some like funny moments that are put in it. Um, you know, he gets driven like I don't know thirty feet in like a golf cart. Um, to get to like the basement to get to the lift um we've got rita wilson in here i'm guessing she was visiting her husband on set and so she appears um uh, as just this pr woman um i can't remember but is beth broderick in this opening scene or because there's a lot of people in and out no she's in she's, the, the bar yeah, later, she, is she and not? then yeah and then later on they they obviously go to a room with a photocopier in but we'll talk about that once we get to it <laughs> yeah, um yes. <laughs> yeah so we like we get some um extremely bored voiceover from uh bruce willis as well throughout this film uh i can't i don't think it starts it starts here doesn't it as just as he's trying to get up towards because he's talking about the book that he's written um yeah yeah i think they go through the um they go through the shot i think the end of the shot he starts narrating if i'm not mistaken yeah um but um there are a couple of shots in there too where uh yeah a little little bit of uh borderline sexual assault going on i think from bruce yeah yeah i mean his his character uh, i i guess is being painted as i mean i guess there's no there's no point in pretending that this isn't tom wolf um like you know it, it, within like within the novel the idea that the main the main narrator and the person who is telling the story is this extremely successful journalist who's also an extremely successful novelist and you yes. know occasionally throws out the odd non-fiction book um it's basically tom wolf um and you know like especially the like i don't mean i don't know if tom wolf is saying that he's someone who freely engages in like mild sexual assault but um there's a lot of times where where Peter Fallow, as drunk as he is, gets handsy with like almost any woman that kind of gets in contact with him, uh, including you know offering salmon straight from his hand um, to to one. In, in fact, he, what he does is the people who take him to the lift, he basically closes the lift behind them so you can t- just talk to this one particular woman. 
Um, but yeah. Oh, that's right. It was, it was a smooth, smooth move. Yeah. Well, as far uh, and... as Tom Wolfe is concerned, you can read the um, the electric Kool-Aid acid test, and um, that's supposed to be a non-fiction novel where he participates. And there's a lot of rapey stuff in that book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the only the weird thing is the only novel of his his that I've read is I Am Charlotte Simmons, and there's a lot of rape in that book as well. Um, and in fact, there's it, weirdly enough, there's a there's a rape by but there's a, a rape by someone who is protected by wealthy people and who doesn't get um, uh, convicted of the assault uh, because because of his connections, basically. So, uh, you know, wealthy people with connections getting away with crime seems to be a common theme in Tom Wolfe novels. Um but once we get up to the actual where, where the event is going on, and by the end of the film, I'll tell you, I have no idea what this event is for. Like, there's a big like mock up of a book that we see, but when we get to the introduction at the end of the film by uh, F. Murray Abraham, he tell he basically tells everyone that this book has won tons of prizes. So it's not the launch, and the book's been yeah, it's not the launch of a book because it couldn't have won the Pulitzer if it had just been, like, if this was the launch. So I don't know what this event is. It's just an event to stroke the ego of Peter Fallow, apparently, um, who is extremely successful. And, and such a such a strange guest list as well, because all the people that look absolutely terrible throughout the book turn up to cheer him on. <laughs> yeah. It, well, yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but we'll get to that once we get to the ending. Uh, because, of course, the voiceover is used to introduce us to uh, the story of Sherman McCoy. Uh, played by our favourite actor, Tom Hanks, uh, in a role of extreme miscasting, <laughs> where it just, like, I mean, he does the best that he possibly can in this role, um, but the problem is it's Tom Hanks, and everybody loves Tom Hanks, and I think Sherman McCoy is meant to be a terrible person, um, but I don't think the film can get that across, because Tom Hanks is fighting against that throughout the whole film. No, the... the um... The film describes him as the hero of the story. Yeah, but I, I feel like that's meant to be more of a like ironic um, uh, moniker than like an accurate depiction of, of, of what he is. Uh, but I, I, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Here's the thing. In a novel written in 1987, uh, a Bond trader who makes millions and is having an affair with an extremely attractive woman. I guess that is the that's the hero to most people in the 80s. Um, but yeah, uh, initially, apparently, uh, there was, there were some other choices that, that were, that would have had this role and the studio was looking to get Jack Nicholson involved, but I think Nicholson was still doing some reshoots for Batman, uh, as this film was being shot. So he was not available. Um, although that might've just been Jack deciding to not get involved with this film and just saying that he was, busy. he read, he read the script. Yeah. Yeah. Instead he went and did Wolf. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's a better film or I. I mean, I haven't seen it myself, but uh, yeah. Maybe he just got confused. He knew about yeah, the novel, that... and um, he just showed up one day and said, "I was supposed to do this wolf project." <laughs> yeah, uh, and then there's also Chevy Chase, Steve Martin. Uh, apparently, Uma Thurma was wanted instead of Melanie Griffiths, but and was initially cast, but then had to back out because she had some of the films that she was doing. There, there was a, a, a story actually in The Devil's Candy about Uma Thurman auditioning, yeah. um, where uh, Thurman was at uh, Brian De Palma's office with uh, with Hanks for their first audition, and uh, essentially Hanks had to perform what led to a, a love scene, so you know, kissing or what have you. Um, 
in De Palma's office. Um, the casting director was there. Julia Salomon was there, the author of the book. And, uh, yeah, Hanks. I, I don't know how old Uma Thurman would have been at this point. She, she would have been quite young, if I'm not mistaken. She would have been about 19, 20. Yeah. And um, Hanks was uh, quite uncomfortable uh, doing this. And um, he was the one that ultimately... She was always in the conversation, but it was, according to the book anyway, it was Hanks that said, no, I just can't act with Uma. Which which is fine because, you know, like, uh, he would have been like 13, 14 years older than her, so I can kind of understand that. Um, would have been quite uncomfortable, yeah. yes. Um, so, you know, well done, Tom Hanks. Um, we should also say, um, you know, Tom Hanks is coming off of Joe versus the Volcano, which was considered a box office flop. And then obviously this is a gigantic bomb. And the following year, he would basically take a break from acting. Uh, he had a conversation with Rita Wilson where he was like, what on earth am I doing? Um, he, he was just like completely burned out. Apparently on the set for Joe versus the Volcano, uh, this was noted by the director as well. He was like, you, you know, like on, in some scenes, he was like completely spaced out and just not like engaged at all. Um, I don't. Oh, yeah, I don't think we get in that in this film. Like his, he seems a lot. When we finally meet him, you know, where he's going to take a dog for a walk, despite the fact that it's pouring with rain, um, and you know, the the narration tells us that he's got like fourteen telephones and eleven different numbers or whatever. Like so, you know, it, it's just an excuse for him to get out of the house so he can go and call his mistress uh, without like you know the the number showing up on the phone bill. Um, but yeah, like it's like we're introduced to him here, like trying to basically trying to convince the dog that it wants to go outside when it obviously doesn't because it knows it's raining. Um, and there is a conversation between him and his wife, played by Kim Cattrall, who, again, you know, I used to watch Mannequin all the time. Um, you know, Kim Cattrall, certainly one of my favorites from the 80s. I mean, in this film, I mean, this is this seems to happen. This has happened for like the last decade with Tom Hanks. He is constantly up against women who one would say are out of his league and Kim Cattrall in this film is so like intensely beautiful. It's like, I don't know what she's doing with Tom Hanks. I love Tom Hanks, but like <laughs> Kim Cattrall in 1990 is, you know, is in a completely different, you know, uh, league into, I mean, she's just in, it's like, it's just crazy. Like, and the weirdest thing to me, and I don't know, maybe this was just, I, I don't know uh, my copy of the film, but it seems like a lot of her dialogue is ADR. Um, whereas, when Tom Hanks is speaking, it seems like it's his voice. But for her, there seems to be a lot of, like, stuff off camera that's, like, ADR'd. Particularly this conversation, like, on the stairs. Uh, I don't know if, like, the location they were shooting was just too echoey or whatever. But, yeah, there's just... Uh, for the whole film, there seems to be this weird, like, constant ADR thing of Kim Cattrall where, you know, when she's off camera, she's always seems to be adding lines. Uh, but maybe that's just me. Um, oh, I, yeah, I never noticed yeah. that. I, I would say, though, I... I don't know about you. I thought that Kim Cattrall uh, is really good in this film. Yeah, um, she's one of the only people in this movie who inhabit their role comfortably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I... She's playing a very broad character, but there are moments where you see absolute heartbreak in her face. I think she does it beautifully. Yeah, well, this this is a weird thing because, like, I'm thinking this is going to be a terrible film, and then we get to Kim Cattrall uh, looking radiant. And like perfectly embodying this kind of like yuppie wife of the eighties, and I was like, this film seems fine. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why people hate this film. Uh, maybe if this film had just been more like eighty percent more Kim Cattrall, maybe people would have loved it. But yeah, I was like, um, yeah, you know, she she really 
like she does the kind of like you know the kind of spurned wife really well um and again I, you know it's it's like i don't understand why uh, sherman mccoy would not love his wife because you know she seems like quite a nice person uh, we should also say that Kirsten Dunst is is in the film playing the daughter. She only really gets one kind of big scene, uh, which is later on, which we'll, we'll kind of get into once we get there. But, uh, uh, you know, you can kind of see in that scene, you know, she's not doing much, but you can kind of see the talent of Kirsten Dunst straight away. You're like, oh, you know, now I understand. You know, you understand why in a couple of years time she's, uh, you know, becomes a star um, with, you know, uh, Interview with a Vampire. And, you know, she just she. Like it's it's one of those things where there's some kid actors who, when they're on screen, they're not that great. But Kirsten Dunst straight away, um, you know, she's uh, she's got the talent. Um, but as Sherman McCoy leaves to go walk his dog in the rain, um, which obviously is not really what he's going to do, um, he runs into Kurt Fuller, everyone's favorite uh, Wayne's World actor, um, <laughs> and which. He, he he plays a great pompous asshole. I think Kurt Fuller. Yeah, oh, well, I, I like everything that Kurt Fuller has ever been in. I think I've always whatever Kurt Fuller is in, I've always loved Kurt Fuller in the in that thing. Um, and I should also say, you can tell that this film is adapted from a novel because literally every single character has two names. There is no character that has one name. Like, so this is not just Pollard. This There's is no man in elevator. No, it's like every everybody gets like two names and it's it's like it kind of goes to ridiculous lengths but yeah i mean i love kurt fuller he's such a he's such a great actor um and you know he's like he, i mean in this role he literally is like the kind of the neighbor who is you know uh just a complete pain and he was like trying to be polite but the fact that he's like you know if you do end up getting soaking wet then you know take the service elevator when you come back like stuff like that's just like it's perfect um but yeah no he's i mean obviously from this you know he just like the year before he'd done like ghostbusters 2 um and of course no holds barred which uh i think i watched a few times when i was a kid because you know we were all huge wrestling fans um and then obviously like straight after this he does like wayne's world and you know since like pretty much everything that he's been in whenever i see kurt fuller i'm like first of all i'm like oh it's that guy from wayne's world but also like he just like he he just really is such a, a kind of uh, such a good kind of like character actor. Uh, he's just one of those guys who, when you see him, you're like, oh yeah, you know, like this is going to be a fun performance. Um, and I mean, we you, you kind of wish that uh, he was in it a little bit more. He had a, you wish that he had a few more scenes in this movie. Yeah, I, it's disappointing because yeah, you, like, you get this. I think you get like one more scene later, and then you get like the scene at the party, and that's kind of like the last you you like you really see of him. And you know, he doesn't like he doesn't really get the full kind of yeah. I mean, it's kind of it's basically like an extended cameo. Like you know, he's he's just kind of in a couple of. But yeah, I would have preferred more Kurt Fuller, more Kurt Fuller and Kim Cattrall. Quite frankly, I would I would that film I could watch. Um, you know, uh, yeah. And so uh, go for it, David. Uh, Kim Cattrall in particular gets very short changed in this film. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, her and Kurt Fuller kind of both disappear after that party scene, don't they? So then they're not in the rest of the That's film. That's right. Um, and I think that's where the film kind of takes a, a, a noticeable no, nosedive. Um, but yeah, and then this is where we get the elaborate, like, you know, taking the dog for a walk so he can go all the way to a different phone so that he can call his mistress. And then, for some reason, he calls his own house and asks for Maria. And it's like, I mean, if you're somebody who's, you know, um, who's like going to the trouble of like you know having an affair with someone you think you'd at least remember their phone number um instead of calling your own home 
Um, and it might might even pay to maybe not take use the uh, the phone box on your street corner. Maybe go a couple of blocks <laughs> away. Yeah, <laughs> just. I'm not experienced with this kind of thing, but if I was to do it, yeah, maybe. Just just remove yourself a little bit further away from your own house. Yeah. Uh, this, of course, then, when he gets home, he pretends that he didn't call. And, uh, you know, Kim Cattrall is like, I know your voice. You know, if you're going to call for some, and ask him for someone from Maria, you know, like, stop pretending that it wasn't you. Um, and then this is when we cut to a shot that apparently caused some consternation. Um, <laughs> because... Uh, one of the second unit directors figured out a time when a Concorde would be landing in New York just as the sun was setting. Uh, this was the second unit director, Eric Schwab, and he managed to like calculate it so that they could get the, the, the sun, you know, as a big halo around the Concorde. And it is a beautiful shot. It's 30, it's, it's like 30 seconds and apparently it cost... It was like a five-camera setup and it cost $80,000. <laughs> and... But it's such like you when you like when you see it, you're like, oh my god! Like it's it's like something you've never seen before, um, particularly these days because Concords don't fly anymore. Um, but just the shape of the like the shape of the Concorde is so distinct that having it against like this setting sun is just kind of amazing. Um, and it's like, oh, like that is you know uh, it, apparently he like the you know this guy was also responsible for the time lapse where they set up some cameras. Um, on the Chrysler building and they did like 24 hours of like New York you know so like he obviously knew what he was doing because that also is a, is a beautiful shot um, but yeah I mean it's on it, the funny thing is it's kind of on the poster the, like the sunset is on the poster like the that sun but it's not it's not really the you know like the full shot of the Concorde but uh, yeah so they like used a bit of the kind of the light that he caught while he was doing that setup and, and use that as the, the sunset on the poster. So, you know, they got some value out of that, that shot. Um, but as we said, the poster is just boring. It's just three people with New York underneath them. Like it's, it's, it's completely dull, but yeah, that, that shot, that, um, I guess, you know, was it, was it $70,000? dollars did you yeah. say? Yeah. Well, it's, it's money well spent, but it is, it just seems to be just a bit of a transition shot. Really. It's, uh, I think I... it cuts away. You get this beautiful shot and then boom, we're in the airport. It's uh, it's lovely, but again, like so many other things in this film, it kind of means nothing. Really. <laughs> yeah. It's obviously a tremendous um, feat of planning and uh, timing, but if you're going to spend that sort of money, couldn't you just rent the Concorde for two hours and have them <laughs> do, you know, like circle around JFK and uh, uh, go go in a, you know holding pattern so we can shoot it against the sunset yeah i i mean i guess there's probably a cheaper way to do it but i yeah i mean it's it, i mean it's such a nice shot it's barely on screen and then like you say it, it is just a, it's just a transition to the introduction of melanie griffiths um and in probably what i mean one of the most miscast roles of her career <laughs> like it's like it just uh, like she never feels like she's really this character it just feels like it's melanie griffiths um, and like I said, at this point, I was in love with Melanie Griffiths. Like, if I'd have seen this film in 1990, I probably would have just enjoyed it for the Melanie Griffiths of it. But um, I, I wondered, was this? Uh, did she do this role as a favour to De Palma? Because they had worked you know, previously on uh, Body Double. Because she seemed to be a bit of a... I know she seems to be a little late in the game to come into this film. So I was wondering, and I don't know the, uh, the, the story behind this, but um, given the, the issues they had with casting, was she... 
did she just come in late in the game or is there is there a story there? Yeah, she uh, she was cast late. Like we said, Uma Thurman was the person that Brian De Palma wanted in this role, but Tom Hanks was like, you know, not feeling it. And so, um, you know, they just they just kind of like re- recast it. And, you know, she just, like you say, she knew De Palma. So De Palma was like, you know, he gave her a call. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it was kind of on the condition that she gets top billing. You know, like she's above the title. Um, because you know she had like Working Girl was a gigantic hit, you know <laughs> she she made like a you know like a like she got nominated for an Oscar I think for that if I remember correctly, um, you know everybody loved her in Working Girl, um, and and so you know she, she like from from that she you know everyone was like uh, you know that it's another name to go above the uh, you know to go above the title. Um, it's weird because she didn't do any films in 1989. Uh, she did Working Girl and then she took a little bit of a break and then she did uh, uh, In the Spirit, which I've never heard of, and Pacific Heights, which I remember the, the kind of poster for that being everywhere. Oh, it's evil uh, Michael Yeah, King. evil evil Michael Ke- Like, Batman goes evil. Um, That's and, right. Uh, he's like the, uh, the... What is it called? Where someone's renting a room from you? I'm trying to think of what it... I've lost that term in my head. It's it's a long time. It's a long time ago. I, I do remember a story, a Melin Griffith story, um, regarding Bonfire of the Vanities. That halfway through production, she uh, had breast enhancement surgery. Um, so there was a bit of a, an issue with the film's editor trying to um, sequence all her shots to keep her chest size consistent um, within the film. She just went and did it. Didn't mention to anyone in the production. Just went and did it. Came back, and uh, yeah someone else's problem so yeah thanks melanie <laughs> it might explain why she's kind of absent for like a portion of the film uh you know where her character kind of disappears after after part of the film and, the, and then it kind of, when it once it starts to get more into the kind of the court case of it all uh she kind of vanishes for a number of scenes um but yeah uh they this is i mean it's funny because like you know the title bonfire of the vanities means absolutely nothing to me um and I had no idea what the plot of this film is. And it turns out this is the plot of the film because we're about to get into it, which is Melanie Griffiths is picked up from the airport by Sherman McCoy, uh, you know, wealthy person. Uh, and they then drive to try, they try and get off at an exit from the airport into Manhattan, but they end up in the Bronx. And then in the Bronx, um, she, I mean, she, <laughs> she, her character actually says, oh my God, natives at one point, which is, I was like, that's just... <laughs> they supposedly yeah. end up in the Bronx. In reality, they end up uh, on the set of Escape from New York. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that, actually. I thought it was the Warriors, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, for a lot of this, they did shoot in New York, but for some of it, it does turn into a very much of a back lot. Um, and, yeah, so they end up in, in like, the Bronx, um, uh, where Melanie Griffiths complains that she cannot see any white people. Um, and they end up t- like kind of um, in a in kind of a panic. They end up going down this this kind of road, and these two men approach them. And uh, a- as they're approaching, Tom Hanks is out of the car, and he gets back in. And Melanie Griffiths drives the car. She kind of reverses it and hits someone, uh, one of these two gentlemen. And then they just drive away. So it's a hit and run. This is it's rich people hit and run. Uh, a black man and that is that's the plot of the film i I, now like like at no point does the phrase bonfire of the vanities spell out to me a hit and run where rich people cause racial 
tension because they run over uh, a young black boy. Like it just like it's so weird that this is the plot of the film, um, you know, and that's right. The, 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 the book, it was the catalyst for much more, um, much more of a politically based charged story. Um, yeah. Satirical, but politically charged. Whereas this it's uh, yeah. Again, it just amounts to a big bunch of nothing. I would summarize it as um, Tom Hanks is um, an accessory to vehicular manslaughter. And the fact that he's getting prosecuted over this makes him the victim. It's crazy. And the, the way the film presents it too, when the, 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 two, um, the two guys approach him, they actually film it in a way where they make it a little bit threatening, which again in the book... Not it doesn't it doesn't happen that way, but uh, it always the movie really tries to sympathise and make you feel sorry for for Panks and uh, for the story to work. You can't you can't do that. That I think is one of the big challenges of making something. You know, making making a book a movie. In a book, you can have um, like a point of view where um, this these these two rich white people end up in the Bronx, and it looks to them like um, you know um, 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 a war zone. If you do a movie, um, you have to you 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 have to you have to put it on the screen, and it looks objective, and the movie makes it look like. Um, the Bronx is objectively a war zone. There's um, there's fires everywhere, uh, turned over vehicles. It looks post-apocalyptic. And and most notably, this is I mean this is the the detail where I was like, it, this is a this is kind of approaching satire, but not quite, because I don't think De Palma has the self awareness. Is just the constant like there's no other way to say this, but the pimps and the hoes. Like there's at least four different pimps who are slapping hoes and demanding money, and like it, it's it's happening like it's so often in this this one tiny like one block area that I'm like is like does no like it just doesn't make any sense like you know there's there's no there's no just group of adults just going out for a meal together no. or something like yeah. that it's just like, a full on everything everything is prostitutes or people with weapons. And you know all of the all of the pimps have got like gigantic gold chains on, and it's like the whole thing just feels cartoony. It feels like this is what it made me think of. It made me think of that scene in National Lampoon's Vacation where they get off at the wrong exit and drive through what appears to be the exact same set. Um, <laughs> and it's like if your film, which is meant to be like a serious film based on like a novel ends up turning into National Lampoon's vacation for one scene, I feel like you've missed the mark completely as to what you were trying to do. Um, you know, and I think the irony is if they wanted it to work as satire, they would have had to go even more kind of like cartoony and exaggerated. But instead it's just it's just not it's just not grounded enough. And that's the problem is you're like, I don't know what like it's like you say, Martin, like in a book, you can have it from the perspective of of Sherman and he him seeing it as a war zone but in the film it, it it has to appear one way and you have to shoot it away so that you know it, it appears to be like they were in a threatening situation and you can't do that and you know like 
it just it doesn't it doesn't there's no way i mean there's a way to do it where you have it from their perspective and then maybe later on you have a flashback and it turns out everyone was being very polite to them and it wasn't like this but you know you can just, you can have the um escape from new york set in in like pov shots from the car's perspective and then you cut yeah. to a wide shot and it's like a normal neighborhood and um people are just you know walking by maybe one one of them waves hi yeah yeah that and yeah yeah have them just overreacting um, that's where it needs to be to, 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 yeah but they 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 don't do that instead they have these two guys who appear to threaten them and she ends up running one of them over um and i think again like there is an attempt at kind of satire in the way that once we once we meet reverend bacon um there is like there's there's a kind of investigation as to who this young boy was and we get a kind of diatribe about like if they don't piss on you then they're considered like an honor roll student <laughs> in this particular neighborhood I, I mean you know so yeah like uh, instantly sherman you know he he wants to go to the police he wants to kind of get ahead of it um maria does not because she's super horny and so, <laughs> so instead of going to the police they have sex uh you know and why yeah, not? and this is something that will happen a few times in this film. In fact, I think even later on, um, once Saul Rubinek meets Melanie Griffiths, it feels like there's an implication that she's going to just, just have sex with him as well. Um, so, yeah. Um, and and this is where we do get introduced to Kramer, as played by Saul Rubinek, who, again, um, I mean, I've seen Saul Rubinek in so much stuff, and I always enjoy what he does. Um, I don't know that he's really given the you know like the kind of depth here to like play this character no the um the character of kramer is uh a much much bigger part of the book um he's arguably one of the 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 leading characters in the book um but he's pretty much pushed to the wayside in the adaptation yeah which is why it's like it's a new i mean you know i guess Saul Saul rubinex a great actor so um you know it makes sense to kind of have him um i i particularly love Saul rubinex doing his henry kissinger in the film Dick, uh, also starring Kirsten Dunst. And, you know, oh. it's, it's like such a funny kind of like take on Henry Kissinger. Another better movie. Yeah, yeah, Dick is a way better movie than this film. Uh, but I think it's funny because he was also in Nixon, directed by Oliver Stone, and he played a different character in that. He played uh, Herb Klein in that. But there's a lot of actors that appeared in the film Dick that also appeared in Nixon. Uh, and I, I, it's, it always makes me laugh because it's like some like different casting choices that they made in terms of how they use the different characters. But yeah, his Henry Kissinger is so... Obviously, Henry Kissinger is a monster in real life. But in the film Dick, as mm-hmm. portrayed by Saul Rubinek, it, it's a funny character. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, you know, I love Saul Rubinek. He's such a great actor. And, and like I say, like, you know, it doesn't surprise me that this was a bigger role in the book because it feels like it's trained to be a bigger role in this film. Um, you know, when we when we meet him, yeah, you really feel like yeah. When we meet him, he's in this court, um, which is the 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 judge is Morgan Freeman, uh, playing. I'm assuming the ironically named Judge White, um, although apparently in the book this character was not black, and this role was offered to Walter Matthau, um, and he said, "I want a million dollars," and they said, "No." And so they then met with Alan Arkin and they said, Alan, how about you do this for 150000 And he was on board. He was like, yeah, sure. Um, and then apparently someone pointed out that, like, you know, uh, they might want to try and, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, head off some of the kind of racial tension that's in the film. And to do that, 
uh, they needed like a black actor to come in and they went to Morgan Freeman. Um, and apparently the studio were like, you know, that's, you know, and then, then they also kind of expanded his, his role a little bit, particularly towards the end of the film. Um, and apparently Edward James Olmos was also considered to play this role. So, um, yeah, it's, it's funny because we meet the judge here. Um, and obviously, you know, this is the introduction really of Saul Rubinek, but with the fact that Morgan Freeman's on screen, you have to pay attention to that and you have to assume that that's going to come back. You don't just cast Morgan Freeman for like one scene. Um, and so it, obviously he will come back later on, but it's weird that he's like, he's, he's in the film, but he's, again, it's a, it's a smaller role, but you know, for Morgan Freeman, you think it would be a slightly bigger role, um, you know, in this particular case. Uh, but yeah, so this judge is someone who is he under he, like he basically understands that the district attorney is up for re-election and is looking for a scapegoat. Um, you know, he's looking for a high profile white victim that he can kind of, you know, prosecute and put away so that he can get the votes of the minorities within the community. Um, and the judge is not going to play along with that. <laughs> so the guy that's been brought into court, apparently the the charges were dismissed weeks ago and he's not happy that, uh, that, that you know, that they're being brought again. And, you know, Kramer is trying to kind of make the best of this situation. Uh, but, you know, basically he's he's not having it. Um, and I think this is where we get to meet uh, Reverend Bacon. Um, play- yes, Reverend yeah, Bacon. Played by the actor John Hancock. Um, who I mean, I've never seen him in anything else, but now I've seen him in this film. I was like, oh, this is a like it's a really good performance, um, and you know, this was his final performance uh, as an actor. Um, you know, he he died uh, in nineteen ninety two. He was only fifty one. Um, oh. Yeah, he'd, he like in the seventies. I mean, the weirdest thing is he's in Airplane Two, which is one of my favorite comedies of the eighties. Um, and he's apparently in that in a small role. So I'm going to have to rewatch Airplane 2 and see exactly where he is in that film. Um, but yeah, like his career basically started in 71, finished in 1990. So it's just like a neat like 20 year career. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I'd be interested in seeing more stuff that this guy was in because like it's a really good performance. Like he's again, he, it feels like he's trying to pl- kind of keep it on one. Like it's in some other films, it would be like a bit more of a parody. And it's kind of it's kind of obvious that he wants to exploit this um, hit and run for a specific purpose. Um, And he's just using, you know, the kind of the victim. Um, uh, Later on, we find out he's also going to start suing the the hospital for millions of dollars as well. (laughs) So, um, so he's kind of a cynical character, but uh, you know, I like how he's using the kind of pulpit um, and kind of yelling angrily at like Kramer when he comes to meet him and stuff. And it's, you know, the kind of, I don't know. I, I, I like. I just think it's he, like he's an interesting actor. Um, it, it is shot quite well that scene. Yeah, so I'll give it that. I like the way that um, that the camera is sort of like down, looking down on Saul Rubinek and the two cops while uh, Reverend Bacon's up high on the pulpit. It's uh, it's a it's a nice little touch. It's a nice shot. This episode continues in part two, releasing tomorrow. <laughs>